All right. I love that you love each other. Now take a seat. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam. I'm the associate pastor here, and I have the great privilege of continuing on with what with the word of the Lord today and, and getting into the Bible together and, and jumping into something that we're really excited about. Um, we are under this banner. We feel like God's been speaking this word, one mission to get, or one family together on mission as a word for this year. And it might seem kind of big or general, but we have a very specific thing that we feel like God's been speaking and leading us to as a people. And uh, we had the awesome privilege last week of starting it with uh, Sean Richmond. I don't know. Uh, if you've ever got to hear him speak before, if you know who he is, but he sits on the board of advisors of our church. He is uh, the team that came and planted this church 13 years ago. He was our pastor. Uh, so we, even to this day, he's, he's who we decided, like, he's our pastor, he's my pastor, uh, just a godly man. And he spoke about how we are one family called to be covenanted together. All right, do you remember this for those who are here? Anybody awake? All right, one family covenanted together. And this idea of like fidelity and faithfulness to one another in love. And what does it mean to be faithful, covenanted together in love? And it was just this awesome week of just kicking off what we believe God is speaking for us as a people. And uh, just a couple of quick announcements about that is because of this word, we feel like next week is a big week for us because we're going to one service. I know we've announced it like a thousand times, but I don't want anybody to miss it. Because if you do and you come right now, you will be quite a bit late to the one service. It starts at 10 o'clock. We're going to have it from a 9 to about 9.45, like the hour pre, uh, leading into the service. We're going to have a time of intercession, of, of prayer, of worship, um, at, adoring, adoration to Jesus, kind of preparing the room and our hearts and our spirits for what God wants to do. It's, I think it's going to be a really powerful time. I strongly encourage you to come to that. Um, there are, there's not childcare, And if you have kids, that's all right. Bring them. We, I want my kids to see me worship Jesus. It sounds silly, kind of, but, no, but I want to model for my kids that like it's good for us to, at home when no one's looking and corporately when everybody is, like we just get in the presence of God together as a people, we enjoy Jesus. And I want my kids to see that as normal. So please bring your children. We'd love to have you in here. Don't feel paranoid about that. And then at 10 o'clock, we will have childcare as normal. We'll have our 10 o'clock service, but that starts next Sunday. So I'm very excited for what God's going to do getting us under one roof, hearing one word of the Lord together as a people. The second thing I want to do is I want to invite the Balducks up, our kids, children's pastors, come on up. Yay! Beautiful people. Come on up. Hello. I'm not going to ask you to scan another QR code. Um, we really just, I mean, I could, but really, um, Andrew and I just wanted to stand up here and just personally thank our church for um, really going above and beyond the call to jump into kids' ministry. Um, when this first came, yeah, just numbers, if you like numbers like we do, we started at like 70-something very, very faithful volunteers, and it's exciting to say that they're going to get some wind put in their sails because now we have over 200 people. So, yes. <laughs> All the volunteers. Don't ask them today how kids' ministry went. Maybe just wait till next week. It was a little bit crazy day in kids. But um, no, just to, um, wind was not only put in our sales, um, it's put in the kids' sales and it's put in our volunteer sales. And I think for us, when this first started, the, this word of the Lord first started, we said, How can we answer in faith? And we're going to say, God, if you said it, then you need to bring the workers. And every week, we're like, he's going to bring the workers. He's going to bring it. And last week, I was standing in the back. And before Joy was even done sharing, 
and challenging all of us to sign up. It was just submissions were coming in like one after another. I had over 100 by Sunday night. And it was the best problem to have. Um, so just really, really grateful. It's not too late to jump into kids. If you're on the fence, just jump in the chaos with us. One thing we love, we say every Sunday when we drive home that we just love experiencing church through the eyes of a child. And it's just, it really is a beautiful thing um, in the midst of chaos. We're just, we're in it with them and we're shepherding them and we're teaching them and they actually teach me way more than I could ever teach them. So yeah, so thank you guys. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can applaud my wife. That'd be great. <clears throat> She's worth applauding. Um, well, I love this church. I love this church so much, and um, it's grown so much over the years, and there's so many faces out here of people that I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, and uh, it's exciting for me to know that so many of you have decided to be a part of Antioch Kids, and so now I do get the opportunity to get to know you and to get to serve alongside you. Um, and pretty much every time I've had the opportunity to be up here, I love to remind our church that there's no junior Holy Spirit. And these kids in this building over here are experiencing the same God, the same Holy Spirit that we do in here every single Sunday. And uh, we're believing for revival in their lives. We're not just offering childcare. We're not just babysitting them. We are truly, we believe that we are, we are partnering with you, the parents, to come alongside you as you shepherd your kids into revival and into a, a deeper and richer relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our goal. And we only get an hour and a half a, a week with them, whereas you parents in the room, you get 24 hours a day, three, six, five. And so we're only a small part of that, but it re really it's, it's our, our pleasure to partner with you um, as, we, as we bring your kids closer and closer to Jesus. And our hope is that they would look more like him when they leave. Maybe some days you see that, maybe some days you don't. <laughs> That's okay. We're all a work in progress and these kids are too. Um, so from the bottom of our hearts, thank you to each one of you that's decided to, to, to be a part of Antioch Kids, be a part of the kids team with us. We're really, really excited for everything that God is going to do this year, and we absolutely couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much, and we look forward to working with you and, and getting to know you more. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, real quick, everybody in the room, let's just extend a hand towards the kids building as they head back. We want to just bless and believe that. The word of the Lord, there's no such thing as junior Holy Spirit. So right now, God, we acknowledge that your spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is over there, Lord willing, just transforming our kids. Like, I pray, Father, for renewed minds and hearts, Lord. I pray, Father, for strengthening the workers, strengthening the kids. I pray that they would have God encounters that change them forever. Um, Lord, I pray, Father, that there isn't the testimony of, man, I had to hit rock bottom and then I started following Jesus. But their testimonies, even at a young age, even at a young age, I can't remember not knowing Jesus. May that be the testimony of these children, that there's a tenderness of walking with and agreement with God their whole life. So we bless them. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, whew, this is, I'm excited. So, we've been praying through, who likes chili? I like chili. I know that's a weird thing to say. I just want to make sure you're awake. Has nothing to do with, no, I'm actually I'm gonna talk about chili. So hey, chili is better two days later. Can I get an amen? amen? All right, thank you. For those who don't eat meat, you can do vegan chili. Um, first, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but you can do vegan chili. But there's something about when something marinades and stews a bit that it's just richer, right? And so this whole like one family together on mission is not some, like, we're not a flashy leadership team and church. I hope you, we have a beautiful facility and we have beautiful people, and, but we are just people in the process with everybody else. And our leadership isn't one who gets really cool 
quips and like colorful schemes and oh, that's gonna be like the new thing that we're gonna do in some series. We literally get on our face with God and say, God, tell us what to do or we're gonna blow this thing up. And then the Lord speaks and then we let it marinate and we let God teach us how to obey him and what he's saying to do. And this one word, uh, this word of one family together on mission is something that's been stewing for a bit. And so I, I'm really excited because I, I, I think it's something significant that God has for us as a family. So last week, as we mentioned, Sean was here teaching about covenant faithful family. And what, it lo- what does it look like for us to be, have fidelity to one another and to love each other? And how that can be very difficult at times. And um, how it has, as a culture in America at least, because I can speak to that, how the idea of fidelity to the church has, has drifted off in the distance. And there's this very individualistic idea of church. It's like, oh, I love, I love God all by myself and everybody else, like, forget the church. Especially if there's ever been wounding in the church. I'd ask you to raise your hand, but probably all of us would raise our hand if I said anybody been hurt by a church member, right? Welcome to church. Sorry. Um, so... But there's this idea, though, that we are still called to be faithful to it. You might have heard us use this language before, but like, if you came up to me and said, you know, Adam, I really love you. Like, I love you so much, and I wanna, I wanna do life with you. I wanna know you personally. I wanna, I wanna be close to you, but your wife drives me nuts. She, she's hurt my feelings, and um, she's awkward sometimes, and they do weird, she does weird things I don't understand sometimes, and so I don't want anything to do with her. I would say, I love you so much, but you and I have a problem, (laughs) right? And so it is with Jesus, where we say, oh, Jesus, I love you so much, and I wanna do life with you, and I wanna walk with you all the days of my life, and I wanna be close to you, but your, your bride, the church, it's hurt me before. And it does things I don't always understand, and it's confusing, and they're, they're awkward socially, relationally, emotionally. They're weird people, right? <laughs> And, and, and I, don't know if I, can, I don't know if I can walk closely with the bride. I'm telling you right now, you are handicapping yourself in the journey with God. Um, I had a, a friend growing up whose dad trained rangers in the army. He was a ranger, and then he aged out at like 30 or something, something really young. And so he looked so young, he actually trained them, and he would compete with them um, and act like he was trying to get into the rangers because he looked unusually young. So he would act like he was trying to get in it, and he would... He would kind of assault or like challenge other ranger uh, people who are trying to get in the rangers to see if they would respond well or not under adversary from another person while trying to accomplish a goal. One of the things he had to do is he had to carry a 200-pound chest on a five-mile hike through the woods with another person. And they had a time limit of how quickly they had to do it. And the whole time he's running through this woods with a 200-pound chest with another guy, he's assaulting the guy, telling him, he's, you're making me slow, da, da, you know, all that kind of stuff to see how he'd respond. And, I, and the whole purpose was to see how do you deal with confrontation with other members? So it's not just can you get through the thing, but like what's inside you and what comes out of you when people don't treat you the way that you should or life doesn't happen the way you should, right? And one of the phrases he taught me was he said this. He says, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. And he'd say, when you go out to fight, you want to know that you're not alone, that you actually need other people to succeed, And so it is with the church that God has created. For for whatever reason, he's created two things. One is that we need each other, that we would protect and safeguard and challenge and keep each other going when different ones of us are hurting or suffering or having hard seasons or whatever. But second of all, he, for whatever reason, has chosen for the the, the very witness of the world that the world would know that God exists is how we learn to love one another. So the church itself and how we learn to do this thing 
is the very testimony of God himself. Doesn't that put a, a weight on you of like, Lord, help me. I want to love well because I want people to know who you are because you are awesome. And so this word of one family feels very significant that we learn to love and respect each other, be faithful to one another in the journey. But as I was praying and stewing for a long time on this, this is months of seeking God in this, I kept getting the same picture in my mind's eye over and over again. I'm gonna ask you just to catch it with me. So close your eyes and entertain me for a second and just imagine a massive banquet table. I mean, unusually large. And all of us are sitting at it. And we're sitting at the table of God. And Jesus is in the middle and we're just chumming up and hanging out and stuff. And I felt like I was like an eavesdropper and I was like observing this family at a table. And I was trying to pick up on things like, okay, how, do the, how are people treating one another? What are the interactions? Do people behave differently, those who are sitting closer to Jesus than those further away? What kind of conversations are happening? Is there laughter? Is there fighting? Like what is happening at the table of God? Okay, you can open your eyes. I couldn't get past this picture over and over again. Every time I'd pray for you, pray for this one family where I kept getting this picture. So I got nerdy and I started reading every time in the Bible where a table shows up. I was like, when does the people sit at a table? When does Jesus sit at a table? Did you know? I was surprised. He sits at a table a whole lot in the Bible. If the dude likes to eat, can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm so thankful. And so I'm like, oh, okay, there's this theme of God talking about how family does family. And so then as I'm praying through this, I keep getting like these thoughts of like lessons learned at the dinner table with Jesus. Like what can we learn about the dinner table environment with Jesus that we need to learn how to be as a family? If we're one family together on mission, but if we're a divided family, there's gonna be no mission accomplished at all by the church, right? But if we're a united, healthy family, think about the impact and the call that we fulfill that God has for us, as the body of Christ to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And so I just started, okay, Lord, what is the lessons learned at the dinner table? So we're gonna walk through a bunch of different little stories in scripture where we learn something about Jesus or about us at the dinner table. Does that sound okay? We're gonna spend a lot of time in Luke. So if you wanna go ahead and turn to Luke 19, that's gonna be our first spot. And this is, this is a precursor to the dinner table. We haven't even gotten to the dinner table yet. And what we see in Luke 19 is a story about a dude named Zacchaeus. And you might have heard of that story before, especially if you're raised in the church, because you know that he was a wee little man, right? Yeah, he was little. And, and he was kind of an outcast in his society. And Jesus is entering to a city, and we know that everybody's kind of, a crowd is gathered, and people are making it hard for different people to see Jesus as he's coming in, because Zacchaeus was actually literally short. He had a hard time seeing, so he climbs up into a tree. But what we learn is starting in Luke 5 is that Jesus sees him. And this is what it says. When Jesus reached the spot, that spot being where the sycamore tree was that Zacchaeus was up in, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus saw Zacchaeus, and in my own paraphrasing, this is what he says, Zacchaeus, I see you, and I want to dine with you. I want to be with you and you with me. And then in verse six, it says, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, 
How has he has gone to be with the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, look, Lord, here and now I have given half of my possessions to the poor. And I have, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to his house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. At first, when I read this, the picture I had was when I was in seventh grade and it was lunchtime. And I'm a new kid at a new school because seventh grade where I grew up is a new junior high, sixth grade was younger. And I was just hoping I knew somebody that would see me. You ever been there? It's a whole lot easier to find your place if someone sees you first and says, hey, you, come sit here. And you're like, oh, good, found my people, right? But when you don't know and you're walking around, you're going, who do I approach? What do I do, right? And there's this place of intentionality by the Lord saying, I see you and I'm inviting you to come dine with me. But what's mind-blowing to all the people there is that he invites a sinner. And all I kept thinking was, do sinners feel welcome at Antioch Community Church? Do they feel seen by people from Antioch Community Church? Are we the manifestation of Jesus at our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, when we walk around? And we see people and we say, I see you. I don't look past you. I don't look down my nose at you. I see you. Come dine with me. Come sit at the table with our family. There's a seat at the table for you, friend. Do we do that? If we don't, we are failing at the mission of God. And we're missing what it means to be the family of God. Because Jesus does not seem to care that it disrupts societal norms that he goes and he dines with a sinner. And if you think that you're someone who hasn't struggled with sin, you're, mo you're greatly deceived about your own journey and needing redemption. And we do not want to be those who get saved by the work of the cross and so quickly forgive what we were saved from. But humility needs to come back to us and say, oh yeah, like God has done such a good thing in me. How do I give this to somebody else? I remember what it's like to be lost and then saved, wandering in my own strength and having God come in his power and heal and restore me. Who else could use this? We're not even at the table yet. And the first lesson is everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. Can you please say everyone? everyone? Think about the person you don't like right now. That person's invited at the seat of the table of God. The person you're currently in conflict with. The person you'll never forgive. Fill in the blank. God wants to dine with them. That's something we have to wrestle through if we're gonna be the family of God. If we're gonna do this thing right, we've gotta get to a place of saying, wow, God, change my heart. May I see like Jesus sees and initiate like Jesus initiates. This whole idea picks up in Luke 14, another table experience. Jesus is telling this parable and he says in verse 16, he says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First it says, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. You know, I got business. Sorry, my job. Another said, I have just bought five uh, yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Sorry, I have other commitments. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. 
Blaming the wife. <laughs> totally guilty of that. And I apologize to every person in the room is like, you've done that to me before, Adam. Sorry, my wife says I can't come. <laughs> She's never said that. <laughs> the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room at the table. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the county lines. Another translation says the highways and the byways and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Do you hear the jealousy that God has for people to be sitting at his table? Can you hear it? There's like a, a righteous anger. He actually uses this word anger comes over the host of the banquet. And this parable is about him and who can be a part of the family. And there is a jealousy in God's heart that all people would come and sit at the table. Do you honestly have a jealousy in your heart for people who don't know God, who's far from God, to come and sit at the table of God? Do you have a jealousy for those in this room that you're already doing life with to stay at the table of God? Sometimes our issue is friendly fire in the own room, right? That's why people get church hurt. They're in a church and we hurt each other. Is there a jealousy for reconciliation? Is there a jealousy for unity? Is there, no, no, stay at the table. Let's continue to meet around the person of Jesus, the head of the table. Let's learn how to reconcile this thing out. There's a jealousy in God's heart for us to do this. Where this parable is spoken happens to be Jesus already sitting at a table. He's telling this parable about a banquet table and how God is jealous for people to sit at it. And we learn in Luke 14, verse one, it says, one Sabbath, when Jesus went out to eat in the house of a, pr a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So Jesus now is sitting at a home of a Pharisee, a religious leader. So this is about the polar opposite of Zacchaeus. I think the church is guilty, myself included, of this. Oh, I'm not like those other religious people. So what am I doing? I'm immediately excluding a massive demographic of people in the, pop in the world. Because I'm more like, I, I love the sinner and I'll go with be with all these other people. And then we start to look down our nose of people who've been entrapped by religion. When Jesus seems to be okay sitting at the table, we're the religious people too. He doesn't love their religion the same way he doesn't love Zacchaeus' greed. But he still loves the person. And so he's sitting with these Pharisees and he's meeting with them. And this is what he says. When he noticed, this is verse eight, how the guests pick their places of honor at the table. So Jesus is sitting in this Pharisee's house. He's observing the, the religious culture of this room. And he notices that there's a whole lot of pride happening in the room. And he notices that there's a picking and choosing of where the, who's going to sit where in there, vying for position. He told them this parable. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and, stay and say to you, hey, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important spot. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus is nailing down at the family table, the lesson we can learn is that he is really serious about having a culture of honor, that we would honor one another, that it isn't this game of comparison, there isn't this backbiting or gossip or slander or you know, fighting for position, but he's actually trying to teach us his, da- his table manners, and he says, when it comes to the table, hey, we come to serve, not to be served. We come to get low, not to exalt ourselves, right? And so this culture of honor, if it's based on a man paradigm, and we say we're honoring, the problem is, is what it becomes is it starts just to become ego-stroking. Oh, I'm honoring that person. Really, you're just, you're trying to find the person that you have higher respect for than someone else, and you're stroking their ego. ego. Man, you're so talented. Man, you're so good looking. Man, you're so, whatever. And it starts to be, and it actually breeds the very comparison that we're trying to, to, to stop. Does that make sense? But when it's God-centered culture of honor, then what you, happens is you start to actually see the very image of God on every person you look at then you can't really compare one from another. I see Jesus. Well, I also I see Jesus. And then I, oh, I see Jesus and I see Jesus. And, and all of a sudden, it, it levels the playing field. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God created humankind or mankind in his own image. In his image, God created them. Male and female, he created them. Like, did you know that embossed upon your face is the very image of God? Do you know this? Do you remember this when you're offended by somebody? Not just your own image, but the image that they bear. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's establishing a culture of honor where we recall, hey, we don't have a man-based system, we have a God-based system, and I remind myself time and time again that you in front of me are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you, you actually possess the very image of God on you in his likeness. So even if you're doing something that is hurtful and inappropriate or whatever, fill in the blank, that doesn't mean I demonize you because my, my battle isn't flesh and blood. There's a spiritual reality of what's happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we, it keeps you healthy. It keeps you grounded when in conflict. It, it keeps you ha- uh, grounded when you're having fights at the family dinner table. Right? Because you're like, hold on. I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. But you look like Jesus. You know, you know, I had Jesus cut me off in the road the other day. And I was like, I love you, Jesus. Might want to learn how to drive, but. Right? There, uh, there's a heart work here. That is, this is, this, is the, this is what matters. Okay, guys, we can look at the news and we can look at the world and we can see wars and famines and we can see these massive moves and there's a lot of conversations among the Christian world of like moves of God and things that are happening, these big issues. But if we can't get the victory at home, we won't win out there. If we can't learn to love each other in here, we'll never get the ability to love people out there. Like this is, this is ground zero for victory for the kingdom of God. Like right here. And the way that I learn to forgive or the way I learn to repent towards one another because I remember, oh, they, they possess the very image of God and I'm not gonna treat them as their sins deserve because Jesus doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. He who has been forgiven much loves much. May we not forget what we've been forgiven of so then we have the power and the ability to turn around and give love away to other people. 
This is so important. This culture of honor is a significant deal because God wants to bring breakthrough and we don't get to pick and choose who possesses the image of God or not. We don't, that's not how it works. I mean, Jesus even says, when you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. You can define least of these however you want. The least like Jesus, the, the least blessed, the least educated, the least economic status. However we try to compare, God seems to like wipe all that away and just says, hey, you all look like me and you all need to learn to love each other. First Peter says it in a way that's so definitive and so offensive that I was nervous to even read the passage. But he says this in 1 Peter 2.17. Show proper respect to everyone. Can you please say everyone? What does that mean? Everyone. Yeah, you guys are getting it. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor, the, the definition of honor means to treat with great consideration. Do you walk around and every person in front of you feels greatly considered? To respect greatly. Do people feel respected by you? Or do they feel disrespected or ignored or overlooked or not even considered at all? Like just... to esteem highly. So it's not only I don't disrespect somebody, but it's actually I see the image of God on somebody and I call it out. Well, that's a different, that's a next level step, right? I'm proactive in raising up somebody else. We don't get to pick and choose. And I think the reason why this is so significant is that Peter's Writing this and that, that show respect, that word is actually translated honor in other translations, so it kind of goes back and forth of honor and respect properly to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God and honor the emperor. Honoring the emperor is a significant deal because the emperor, the emperor is trying to kill and persecute Christians. It's the Hitler of their day. And he's saying, even the worst of these, we don't get to choose who has the image of God on them. When you get there, it's just offensive. Like the Bible, you offend me. I don't know what to do with you because it's really nice to have some exceptions. I can have, ex yeah, God, I'll, I'll love and respect and honor people, but not this person. Did you know the Bible teaches that we are called to love everybody? Everybody. That's crazy. Okay, our cult, let me put it this way. Our culture says love those who are lovable, respect those who are deserving of respect, and honor those who are honorable, Right? That's what our culture teaches. That's, that's beat into us as a normal, and we even think that that sounds like a pretty good mantra. Yeah, like let's, let's acknowledge those who are honorable. Let's, let's respect those people. Let's love those who, who are, but the Bible seems to say, no, no, the church at my dinner table, if you're, God speaking, if you're sitting at my dinner table, my expectation is that you love everyone. My expectation is that you respect Everyone. My expectation is that you will show honor to everyone. What? But think about how otherworldly that is and why, if doing that, the world would radiate, it would scream out that God is real because it's nothing like this world. That is our testimony of learning to do these things. 
another table experience that we see is in Luke 22. And what's so interesting about this is it's a very kind of special table in church history. It's the Last Supper. So Jesus is hanging out with who he would define absolutely as family, his closest friends. And he grabs a piece of bread and he breaks it. Then he gets a cup of wine and he pours it out and he says things about how this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of many sins. And then, and then he challenges them to go be likewise. To like go live like this, a broken poured out life. And he's challenging them on like how to do relationship. This isn't go live broken and poured out in solitude. This is like, how do I live broken and poured out in front of you and with you and in relation with other people? And then what's crazy, which is like, I could so see myself in the middle of this conversation. I'm no better for the record. But like verse 22 or 24, right out of this conversation, literally the next thing is a dispute breaks out among the disciples. So he's like, be servants, love people, be broken, poured out. And then he goes, a dispute also arose among them uh, to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Like, Jesus, like, are you hearing anything I am saying? I mean, I feel like it's my conversation with my kids sometimes. I'm like, you didn't hear daddy, did you? Like that went right over your head. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So what he's saying here is, hey, the model in which you're used to in your world is that there are worldly authorities that are used to being over top of subordinates and you're supposed to just do, serve the leaders. And that's just, the, it's a down up method of servant. Okay, that's what he's saying. But then this is what he says, but not so with you. At my dinner table, Jesus speaks, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. This is what it looks like at my dinner table. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Like he's like, yeah, isn't it how the world works? And he says, but I among you as the one who serves. But what he's saying is my example for you is we get low. That's what we do. When you're in a relationship and you're in conflict, you don't know what to do, get low. Humility wins the day every time. Get low. Don't let vain imagination start to creep in and tell you what that other person is thinking. Don't let vain imagination creep and tell you you know exactly why they did whatever that person did. Get low. Hey, how can I understand? How do I come close to you? I wanna get close to you. How do I serve you even though I don't understand what you're doing right now? Man, this is otherworldly, guys. We can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. But yet, he offers it to the church. And that's why we're the testimony of the world. Because we're, there's a grace to do this. I had a conversation this week with one of our advisory board members who kind of oversees our church. They're like accountability for us, which is an awesome group of three men who love Jesus. And they live around the country and they come in and just encourage us and challenge us or whatever we need. And one, his name's Fred, and I was with Fred, and we just started getting in this conversation. And Fred's brilliant and colorful in his thinking and everything, and so he's just like, you know, it's like every house has this big box. At least in, he lives in Texas. They're all, he's like, they're all green in Texas. Like, well, they're probably all brown in Arizona. Um, and he's like, but there's, they're called transformers. 
And what they do is they take the high voltage energy that's happening, that's racing through the city and through the, through the, the state and through the nation, and somehow it comes this transformer and it has the ability to change the impact or what's happening with this energy to then make it useful and appropriate for each house. And as we were sitting there just kind of playing around with this idea, we were like, that's exactly what the church is supposed to be. There's all this energy. There's all this gossip. There's all this slander. There's all this anxiety and depression. There's all this backbiting. There's all this... Uh, fear. Think about all the things that's just running through our culture. And the problem is, is what happens is if you're in the way of that and you're coming through this, this line of energy of all this stuff's coming and it hits you, we just adopt it. I'll talk to somebody and they'll be like, man, I'm so anxious. And by the time I finish that meeting talking to them, I'll be walking around going, I just feel anxious. Or someone will be like, man, I'm so angry. That person did it. Can you believe they... And I wasn't upset with them before, also I'm leading them going, you're right, that person's a jerk. I just adopt it. Or, man, it's just been such a hard season, such a hard season. And I'll be going, yeah, it has been a hard season. And it hasn't been. I just all of a sudden now think, it's been a really hard season. <laughs> right? We just, and we like manifest the junk that just hit us. And we need to be able to share with one another. So I'm not saying we don't go to each other, but what are we supposed to do as the church? We are supposed to absorb it long enough, just long enough to take it to the foot of the cross, the great transformer of all things. And we say, oh yeah, that's really hard. I'm so sorry. And we go to Jesus. We say, God, what do I do with this? And we stand before the cross and he says, give that to me. I've, con I've already conquered that. Give it to me and I'm gonna transform it and where they, where they had hostility, I'm going to give you grace. Where they had hatred, I'm going to give you love. Where they have confusion and, and disillusionment and deception, I'm going to give you truth and wisdom. Like, and all of a sudden, we can, can turn back to those people around us in the community of God and outside these walls and say, hey, I know that that's what that feels. And, I, and then we can empathize and we can mean it and we can love them because we see the image of God on them, but we don't have to adopt to that garbage. We can say, no, like, this is, and we have, that's why we have to know the Bible. We have to know the truth to, to fight off the lies, right? And we need each other to hold ourselves to it. But there's this thing where I believe God is wanting to transform this family. He's like, at my table, we don't adopt the world's behaviors and attitudes. We transform them and we give them back into a kingdom reality. But this has to start at home. Obviously, I'm so convicted, <laughs> The other day, I yelled at my middle child. I'm truly confessing right now because he was doing something that was driving me crazy and there was some legitimacy in regards to he wasn't doing what daddy asked. But my behavior was out of line. And I carried that all day. Like all day, I was bothered. It like was irritating me. And it was the Holy Spirit going, you know that's not what you were supposed to do. Like, you know that you were just adopting something and giving it and you just dumped on your poor little boy. So then, as soon as I saw him at the end of the day, like I went and picked him up, or he got dropped off at the church for a practice, and I literally had to pull him aside, and I had to get down on my knees, because I felt the humility of God where my head needed to be lower than his. Like, I felt the urgency of that, and I had to get low, and I was like, buddy, I am so sorry for how daddy treated you. I was wrong. This is why daddy needs Jesus, too. Right? 
You know what, how, the impact we'd have at the church, uh, in the world as the church, if we told the world that we're sorry sometimes, and this is why we need Jesus? We haven't arrived. We haven't arrived. The only thing we've arrived at is we've learned the source of getting transformed. But do we go to him to get transformed? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And God is inviting us to be people who function differently as a family. And he says, go and get low. Humility wins the day. It wins the day. And I specifically feel like it's about how we talk. I feel like that's the thing God's speaking about this morning as a, as a highlighted place. How we communicate, how we talk to one another or about one another gravely matters. The Bible says the tongue is like a rudder of a ship and it dictates which way life goes. So when you're just flipping, and, oh, I didn't really mean it. Yeah, you probably did, and that was really destructive. Right? It also says that the tongue is the power of life and death. So they're putting some pretty significant emphasis on how we use our mouth. The words we choose to give, the words we choose not to give. Ephesians 4 says this in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it, may be benefit, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now listen, if it says to get rid of it, that means there's a way for us to get rid of it. We can't just be like victims of our circumstances. I'm just angry and I'm justified in my anger. I'm bitter. Do you not see how I was victimized and I was, I was treated wrong? But the Bible's saying, you don't live there. It's not that God is agreeing that that was good or that you shouldn't tend to it. Grieve things and get help and get restored. Don't live as a victim. And don't live in your bitterness. There's actually a means in which he says you can get rid of it. And that's going to the cross and saying, God, what do I do with this? Can I please cast my cares on you? And he's like, absolutely, because I care for you. Give them to me. And there's an exchange that happens. And then what that exchange is, is verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as Christ God has forgiven you. And Colossians 3 picks up on the same sentiment and it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Because the Bible calls us new creations. It says the old is gone, the new has come. You don't have to live like that old person. You might have generational sin of anger and whatever else, but you can, you can be the chain breaker for your family. And you can be the one saying, I'm not gonna continue that anymore. And then it says, now you must put away these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. How we talk, not just to people, but about people, is super important. And we need to take it more serious than we, we do. There's a place of health that God wants to bring to the church in the way that we use our mouths. I, have a, I do a lot of premarital counseling and uh, the second meeting that we have with people is called Conflict and Communication, which you know is like everybody's favorite you know, to talk about those things. And I have these, these rules that I've kind of collected over the years. I've learned from the Bible and from other just godly marriages that I've kind of compiled. But one of the rules is this. It's called no name calling. And you would think, duh. Like, that's probably good advice, right? Don't name call. But the rule is actually very loaded. It's, it's just like Jesus where it seems like one thing, but there's a lot deeper level to it. So like, you know, murder, don't have hatred. You know, adultery, don't lust, Right? Well, don't name call. It's like, you're not, only not only to, you're not only not allowed to name call. Like if, you know, if I did something jerkish, you know, my wife would be like, you're a jerk. She wouldn't say that because she's kind. But I'm saying, 
not only can she not say that, but then in addition, she has to go to war with thinking it. Uh-oh. So that person, you're so angry and you're like, well, I'm not doing anything, but you know you're dying on the inside because you're festering bitterness and resentment and pride and arrogance and just malice towards that person. God's like, kill that. Kill it. It's gonna kill you if you don't. And so there's this rule, no name, not only can I not say it, but I'm not allowed to think it. And then, just like Jesus, he turns it and he says, now operate in the opposite spirit. So the opposite spirit is when not only do I not say something critical or or unfair of my wife or about her identity that's not aligning with Jesus, but now I'm also saying every time I think anything that potentially could be like that, I gotta not just think it, but I have to have the courage to say it out loud. Wow, like that was so kind. Shelly, thank you for doing that. Or wow, like you you were so beautiful. Or the way that you mothered our kids totally modeled Jesus in that moment. That was so good. Like saying out loud the things that God agrees with. This is not a personality type. This isn't just for extroverts, right? This is a character development thing where God's saying, I want your heart to catch up with reality, his reality, not the world's. And so we have to have this rule of no name. God, I need to go a step further. In Luke 6, 45, this is the principle. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So if you say, I didn't really mean that, that's the moment you need to go get alone with God and process, God, why did I actually mean that? Because it came out of my mouth and it's because there's truth in it somewhere in my heart. And if that was wicked, unkind, evil, then Lord, go to work in that in me. Do some business with me, Jesus, because I don't want to reproduce that down the line. Walking in honor has a lot to do with our attitude and posture and the way we handle relationships. But it is impossible to walk in love, which is the command we talked about last week, without honor and respect that we're talking about right now. But I would say this, it's impossible to honor other people without humbling ourselves. So if you're like, okay, where do we begin in all of this? Like, how do I even start right now in this moment? I love this proverb, Proverbs 18, 12. This is truly like the word of the Lord for us this morning. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Another way that that's described is proud. Before destruction, a man's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. In the Old Testament, um, it's full of good kings and bad kings, and it's, it's the history of the people of Israel. And if you kind of read it, there's like this ebb and flow of good and bad kings that are kind of following along. Well, there's one king named Uzziah. And you might have heard his name before because a, a popular passage that we love is reading from Isaiah 6. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And that might be like, oh, I've heard that. That's where it is, right? right? Well, it's, it's actually found in Second Chronicles as well and actually talks about the guy. But what's so interesting is that Isaiah 6 passage is about this humbling experience that Isaiah had where he thought he was a little bit higher than he thought he should of himself. And he says that, woe is me, a man of unclean lips and unclean heart. And God sears him with a coal and God restores him. But he has this great humbling that is so good for the prophet Isaiah. And it happens in the same season that the king of the people of this time is King Uzziah. And the thing that's interesting about him is he became king at 16. 
He ruled for 42 years, and he was a good king in the history of the people of Israel. And it talked so much about him is about how he had great relationships with the people. And they all worked together as a family. Different people brought what they had, they served, they were great. But what happened is it started to get to Uzziah. And we read in verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 26, it says this, his fame spread far and wide for he was greatly helped by all his people until he became powerful. So he's doing life with all these people and he's growing in fame and popularity and all of the community is actually becoming impactful and working well together. But there was a, a seed of something in Uzziah's heart that wasn't dealt with. And this is what it says in verse 16. It says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. I want that to hit harder than it did just now. His pride led to his downfall. Did you know, okay, in the Bible, two-thirds of the people we read about in Scripture, in the whole Bible, where we see the beginning all the way through the end of their life, two-thirds do not end well. Did you know that? Pride became their downfall. It's the same story for all of them. Pride. It's the very enemy of God. When we think either too highly of ourselves, or on the flip side, too lowly. Did you know that? Did you know that insecurity is another form of pride? Because you're still self-obsessed. I'm just not measuring up and I'm not good. And, I'm, and it's like this, you get in this internal cycle that's eating your lunch. And God's like, get your eyes off that and get your eyes on me. Let, let me show you how you're an image bearer of me. Let me tell you again who you are so then you can better rightly understand and see other people and understand who they are. Pride must die. There is a call for us as the church to kill pride. We gotta kill it. We gotta go to war with the pride in our own heart. Our own judgments, our own gossips and slanders, slandering and, and, and insecurities. And God wants to make us healthy. He wants to make us whole. My favorite author is a guy named Andrew Murray. And he writes a book called Humility. And in the book, one of the quotes is this. He says, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And so this morning, we're sitting at the table of the Lord. And God is wanting to know if we're willing to do the table business like he wants us to. First of all, are we shunning people from being able to have a seat at the table? Do we have an issue with inviting people to come and be a part of what God's doing here? Are we having issues with other people at the table and we don't want to sit next to them? And God's wanting to bring reconciliation and healing there. Are we operating as a people who honor one another, seeing the very image of God embossed on the face of every heart, mind, and soul of every person in this room? And ultimately, are we willing to guard what we say? Are we willing to go to work with our own heart and kill the pride that creates the division for all of that to happen? Will you stand with me? We're gonna have a time to respond and this is 
This is what I want to do. I, I feel like there is a right response for us to humble ourselves. So the band's going to lead us and, and we're going to have music playing and we can have some people up here if you want to get prayer by somebody. But I really feel like I want to challenge or invite you to come forward. And specifically, to get on your knees because when you get on your knees, it's a posture of humility and it's doing business with God, saying, God, come and do business with me and kill the pride that's in me that's blowing up my friendships, that's blowing up my family, that's blowing up my workplace environment. Like, I'm called to be the ancient of change in these places and I've adopted the cultural paradigms Instead of absorbing what the world gives and I give it to Jesus and I come back with something different, I've just adopted anxiety. I just, I'm, I'm overwhelmed all the time and all I say is I'm overwhelmed. Whatever it is, I, you, know what you're, you know how you're doing business with the Lord. But what I wanna say is there's something about physical response that leads our heart sometimes. And I'm, I feel like the right thing for you to do is truly to come forward right now. Don't wait. Come forward, get on your knees is start to do business with Jesus. And as you come forward, I want to read Philippians 2 over you. You know, Max Licato is quoted saying, relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. And I feel like maybe some of you are still in your seat because you're having a hard time wanting to forgive somebody. And you're like, they're not deserving of mercy. And then my question would be, are you? Are we? And I just think that there's a place for you to lead your heart to the floor right now and ask God to change your heart. Humility is not about retaliation, but it's about reconciliation. First, we humble ourselves to be reconciled with God and be in agreement with him, but then we also operate in humility to be reconciled with others that relationships might thrive. So I'm gonna read Philippians 2 over you as you respond to the Lord, verses one through four. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And this is the challenge. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, love others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but to you, to the interest of others. Lord, I'm praying right now that you would come and do business with us, that we would be people who humble ourselves by you. God, you give grace to the humble, but you resist the proud. We do not want a heavenly stiff arm from you, Lord, but we want to get low that you might exalt us in due time. So Lord, I'm asking right now that you would heal us of our own selfishness, our own pride, our own self-serving, our backbiting, our, the times that we have been the very center of, of groupthink and gossip and people are talking and all that stuff, God, we, we want to stop that. We want to speak honor and life and respect towards people. Heal us where our wounding 
has been unaddressed and it's made it hard for us to respond that way. I'm asking for healing in the room right now in Jesus' name of, of people who have been victimized and hurt and offended and mistreated. And there's such grieving where they, they feel totally uh, maligned by other people. And I'm asking God right now that you would restore them. Restore those people, Jesus. But God, may we not respond in the like. We operate in a different spirit. God, would you come do business with us, we pray.